0: I'm Raj. And I'm Eddie. This is Blood Cancer Talks. This is a podcast exclusively dedicated to hematologic malignancies, where we bring content experts who live and breathe a particular disease and focus on the latest advances in biology and clinical management. Today, we are excited to talk about the management of low-risk MDS. We have an expert, Dr. Mikhail Sakharas who is the Chief of the Division of Hematology and Professor of Medicine at the University of Miami Health System and Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center. Dr. Sakras, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for your time. Before we can start, can you tell us about yourself and your clinical
1: and research focus for our listeners? Sure, well, let me just say what a privilege it is to be on your podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, And it's great to be reunited with friends as well. Uh, I, uh, started my career in the great city of Cleveland at Cleveland clinic. And I was there for about 18 years and I came there straight out of fellowship and did my training in uh, Boston, my residency and fellowship there. My focus since my fellowship has been on um, myeloid disorders, particularly in older adults. So I focused on myelodysplastic syndromes when it was unfashionable to focus on myelodysplastic syndromes. And my career advice to anyone starting out is if you identify a disease focus that nobody else wants to do, drill down on that like a laser, and eventually you'll become the expert because there's nobody else who wants to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Which is... that's, that's an excellent career advice. <laughs> so I um, focused on myelodysplastic syndromes and acute myeloid leukemia in older adults as a fellow, my major project coming out of fellowship was looking at a study of quality of life and decision-making in older adults with uh, AML or higher risk MDS. Uh, then I started to do clinical trials in MDS and uh, continued that for the rest of my career. Fantastic. And I personally can
0: say that I've worked with Dr. Sakras in the clinic. He's an excellent clinician, and I'm proud to say that I learned a lot from you. Thank you, and your, your royalty check will be in the mail. <laughs> All right, we will get started. So we'll start with the case, and you can walk us through how we would approach this patient, and we can discuss the data as we go. So this is a 68-year-old man with no significant past medical history. Presence with fatigue and dysneon exertion. Complete blood counts show at the time of presentation with a white count of 4.8, hemoglobin 8.3, and a platelet count of 394,000. Workup was unrevealing. Nutritional deficiencies were negative as well. And subsequently, it, he, patient was referred to a hematologist and a bone marrow aspiration and biopsy was performed to evaluate this profound anemia and the bone marrow biopsy showed moderately hypercellular marrow with trilineage hematopoiesis there is mild megakaryocytic atypia in the setting of borderline thrombocytosis iron staining revealed abundant ring sideroblasts. there is no increase in blast by morphology and reported flow cytometry cytogenetics were normal myeloid ngs panel showed sf3b1 mutation with a variant allele frequency of 23 percent so in a patient like this who is uh, likely has mds um based on the morphology how do you approach a case like this can you please walk us through your thought process and any other further diagnostic workup would you do before uh, recommending therapy
1: no it's a great thank you for that outstanding presentation and um Ashwin, I will um, echo the fact that, that you were amazing in my clinic when we, uh, when we worked together. So it's so great to see you at a, an outstanding institution as well. Thank you. Um, so a 68-year-old man with, who looks to have MDS with essentially unilineage dysplasia with ring sideroblasts and then, of course, a supporting molecular abnormality with SF3V1 with a, a real variant allelic frequency. And at a hemoglobin of eight point three, you start to toy around with whether or not he's going to start to need a transfusion. And um, you know, we different institutions have different standards for when they offer transfusions to patients. My approach has been to offer a transfusion to a patient with myelodysplastic syndrome with a hemoglobin of less than eight. I think the majority of my patients start to feel it with a hemoglobin less than eight. One of the most common mistakes I see is in outpatient clinics, people waiting for hemoglobin of seven before they give a transfusion. And they do that for the right reasons. Um, There were some excellent studies that were performed um, mainly in intensive care units that showed um, that if you have a more conservative transfusion threshold at seven, patients do just as well as when you have a more liberal transfusion threshold. So that's all well and good for somebody who is intubated and on pressors in an intensive care unit where they're not allowed to leave the bed. But for our patients who are outpatient and trying to live their best lives, a hemoglobin of seven isn't going to cut it. Uh, and that's why I do use a transfusion threshold debate. Now, I do ascribe to the choosing wisely guidelines of only giving one bag of blood at a time for a patient uh, when I transfuse them. But I will have an occasional patient Uh, for example, somebody who has severe heart disease, or uh, when my patients report that they really feel as if they drop off a cliff with their performance status uh, and their quality of life when their hemoglobin dips below nine, and those patients I will transfuse up higher than my typical patients. But those are kind of the exceptions to the rule. So that's kind of how I think a little bit about transfusions. And I give that background because we base initiation of therapy in a patient with lower risk MDS on when their quality of life is starting to be affected in a significant way. And the reason we do that is because no prospective study has ever shown a survival advantage for any intervention in lower risk MDS versus no intervention in lower and lower risk MDS. So ultimately our decision to treat isn't one where we say we're going to improve our patient's survival. It's one where we're saying we're going to improve their quality of life. And if a patient with lower risk MDS has a good quality of life, is able to go out, um, golf a couple times a week, um, down here in South Florida, um, eat outdoors at restaurants and see their buddies and really doesn't have a compromise in quality of life, the only thing I'm going to give to that person by treating them are side effects to treatment and the potential of compromising that quality of life. So for a patient like this, the very first thing I would do is assess this gentleman's quality of life and start to ask him questions about what it is he does every day and if there's any compromise in what he does. And it's helpful to ask those questions in the setting of a partner, someone who sees that person every day. Um, because you'll also have some patients who try to put on their, you know, their best jacket, their best tie, their best face for their doctor. And you need the person to step in to say when this, if this gentleman, for example, says to me, I'm fine. I'm, I've got no problems. I'm only here because my wife made me come here. It's impossible. It, it, it's helpful for the wife to then pipe, you know, first roll her eyes and then pipe up and say, um, you know, you're napping for two hours every afternoon and you never used to do that. And then trying to define the time period of never used to do that. So it, you know, in a 68 year old, you would expect him to be pretty functional in an 83 year old complaining of a, a diminution in functional activity. You need to make sure they're comparing it to when they were 73 and not compared to when they were 33. So I try to tease that out of people a little bit, and then, you know, in somebody with a hemoglobin of 8.3, let's say he is starting to suffer and he slowed down and he starts to get short of breath when he goes out for his nightly walk with his wife and um, he's having trouble with stairs Um, and maybe he's even, you know, lost a bit of his appetite because it's no fun to live with anemia and people's appetites start to, to drop off. Well, then we would start to consider treating this person. I don't ordinarily like to treat somebody if they aren't already receiving red blood cell transfusions. I don't believe in the philosophy of avoiding transfusions. But if this if this gentleman is complaining of, of major side effects to anemia, and therefore I would say, gee, let me give you a bag of blood and see if it makes you feel better, which sometimes I do is like a, almost like a test dose, um, then I think it's legitimate to start to think about treating this person. That's excellent spoken, like a true
0: clinician. Um, so one thing is, that is something I've seen some of the fellows as well as junior faculty struggling with is how to restratify stratify MDS patient who walks into the clinic. Are you, in your practice, incorporating molecular mutations into restratifying
1: stratifying these patients? Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a really great question, Ashwin. So, you know, with MDS, we don't have a staging system. And and this is the hardest thing to get my patients' heads wrapped around, because a a lot of my patients come to my clinic these days and know that MDS is a type of cancer, right? They they already know that. They've already done some of the research, and we worked a lot with patient advocacy groups about their patient education literature um, about whether or not to put the word cancer in that literature. And we've all decided we think that's probably a good thing. So patients come in and they know that it's cancer. So once they know that it's cancer, they're now comparing them, themselves to their buddy who had lung cancer or a sister who had breast cancer. And they'll say, okay, what stage am I? So how do we stage MDS? And we do it in this quirky way based on prognostic scoring systems, right? The, the granddaddy of them all was the IPSS. Then that was revised in a publication in 2012. And now we're dealing with molecular data as well. And these prognostic scoring systems are predicated on the number and degree of cytopenias, the percentage of blasts in the bone marrow, and then genetic abnormalities, right? And increasingly we're using molecular genetic abnormalities instead of just karyotype to determine that. I use the, I still use the revised IPSS. I've started to use the IPSS-M in clinic as well. Um, and as you know, when we were in Cleveland, we developed a personalized predictive model that uses artificial intelligence machine learning programming to incorporate molecular and clinical data. I'm not 100% sold on the IPSSM just yet. Um, I uh, My personal bias is that it's bulky to use, uh, and it largely includes patients who haven't been treated. So once again, the same. Achilles heel of the IPSS and revised IPSS is that uh, patients weren't treated with drugs. And in fact, when we contributed data to the revised IPSS, about half of our data was returned to us with thanks, but no thanks, these patients were treated. So these systems may, may or may not be relevant to patients who actually ultimately received therapy. Now, I'm an MDS nerd, like I admit it. and. Therefore, I'll kind of wring my hands over these different systems and come up with prognostic scores for my patients. Um, But for those who don't do MDS every single day, it's also okay to kind of do a back of the envelope assessment. Let's take your patient as an example. 68 years old, so a little bit on the younger side for MDS, the median age of diagnosis is about 71. So automatically you would think probably has a slightly better prognosis. Mm -hmm. Younger people do better in just about anything that we treat. Isolated cytopenia. Okay. Again, probably going to do better. It doesn't have multiple cytopenias. Karyotype is normal. Again, that's a good sign, right? The more genetic abnormalities you have, the worse you're going to do. And that's true in any cancer and an isolated SF3B1 mutation. If you're trying to figure out which molecular mutations are good and which are bad, it's really easy in MDS. There's only one good one, SF3B1. Everything (laughs) else, Is intermediate or bad. So right off the bat, um, you know that this guy is going to have a better prognosis. If you have somebody who has different mutations, also remember even when we did this artificial intelligence machine learning programming, the number one genetic factor that came out as a bad risk factor is the number of mutations. So instead of trying to spend a lot of time memorizing which mutation is intermediate and which is poor, just remember Once you've got four or five mutations, you're not going to do too good, just like with complex karyotype. Right, right. So, guy like him, back of the envelope, just looking at him without calculating anything, he's going to have a good prognosis, he's going to live for years, and our focus is going to be on quality of life. Um, One other question
0: is, um, right now we have two different classification systems. One is the World Health Organization revised classification 2022 and there is international consensus classification. They renamed the disease as myelodysplastic neoplasms instead of syndromes.
1: I'm interested to see what's your take on that. Well, I'm so happy that these two systems were published like within two weeks of each other and are totally different because it's led a bunch of us to have a ton of publications now. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's the best benefit of having inconsistent pathologic classification systems. It's really wonderful. So if you, I'm I'm joking, of course, Um, there's a lot that's similar between the systems and there are some nuances that are different. So once again, this is one of those things where we wring our hands over this and try to figure out how we're going to classify these patients. And um, here, down here at the Sylvester Cancer Center in Miami, we actually have a weekly tumor board looking at patients who have leukemia-related disorders. And over the past few weeks, our pathologists have started it off with reviewing the different systems and how they're going to be classifying it. So we're all on the same page about this, which has been a, a you know, great education, I think, for all of us. Um, but it, but it's made it more complicated to be a pathologist with myeloid disorders. Both of these systems do things that are somewhat similar. They call out patients with an SF3B1 mutation as being a specific group. Okay, well, we knew that. And, and frankly, if you go back in time to the WHO, it already called out patients with ring sideroblasts. So this isn't any different. It's just that we're now saying it by a molecular mutation as opposed to a morphologic finding, right? That's the same. They both call out patients with TP53 abnormalities. Okay, well, they're bad, right? And there are some minor exceptions to that about whether they're like bad or really, really bad. But uh, they both call that out as well. They then call out patients who have excess blasts as being a a specific group. And that makes sense also. Once you start to have excess blasts, you clearly have a block in differentiation. You've clearly started down what I call the grim rose path of um, turning into leukemia, right? So those three things are consistent. Those three things I think are pretty major distinctions within MDS. And then they get into nuances. Mm -hmm. So. Um, you have the ICC, which is basically retaining the whole single lineage, multi-lineage dysplasia distinction. Um, The WHO system is focusing more on patients who have subtypes like hypocellular MDS or fibrosis. And I think those are actually relatively rare subtypes of MDS. Um, Then you get into one major difference between the two. The ICC has decided that once you have greater than 10% blasts, you now fall into a category of MDS overlapping with AML. Now, that may seem pretty revolutionary, but guess what? We actually kind of hinted at this in 2012 with the revised IPSS. Once again, if you're an MDS nerd like I am, you'll go into the supplementary tables, not just of the revised IPSS in 2012, but the original IPSS in 1997. And what you'll find is that patients who have 10 to 19% blasts actually have the same survival as those who have 20 to 29% blasts in both systems, in both the IPSS and the revised IPSS. Now the original IPSS had a different score for those two groups, which I think was an emotional decision and not a scientific one for the revised IPSS. We basically said, well, that doesn't make any sense. We're going to give them the same score. And that's why once you have greater than 10% blasts in the revised IPSS, you get the same score. So at the time we were putting this together, I said to Peter Greenberg, and I remember um, talking to him about this. um, I said, why don't, maybe we should put something in the discussion section about how maybe these patients should be called AML. I mean, why are we making this distinction about MDS when if you have 11% blast, you have the same survival as 29% blast. And Peter has this very dry way of responding. And it's also very funny. You got to listen to him closely. And he turned to me He said we're hoping to get the paper accepted to blood. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning that if we started to introduce this controversy in the discussion section, we'd get ourselves into a, a, a pit of snakes. So anyway, so, so circling back to your question, yeah, there, there's this ICC versus WHO distinction. There's, there's actually, and I started this off by saying that they were really different. They're actually not, they're actually very similar. And um, in terms of prognosis, um, there really isn't that much difference between the two groups in how we classify patients.
2: I did want to follow up um, with a question about, uh, two questions actually. One, have you, have you or do you think you will start referring to them as myelodysplastic neoplasms given the name MDS is kind of so well loved and you know like you can argue about the value of that but I'm interested in your thoughts and the other thing is you mentioned right at the start that 22.9% is a real variant allele frequency or VAF and I would love you to give us more thoughts about what what do you mean by real and what do you think about as real or, or, or not being worth thinking about
1: yeah two great questions you know I uh, I like to write, which means I get t- all, all in a twist about semantics and what we call things, um, pr- probably to the detriment of all of my colleagues who have to listen to me drone on about this. Um, we, we're still getting used to calling it myelodysplastic neoplasms, and just for, for to be completely crystal clear, we're still calling it MDS, even though it's myelodysplastic neoplasms. Um, I, I, I like the idea of switching it over to myelodysplastic neoplasms because I think that it very clearly states that these are cancers. Like there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. But have I started to use that with my patients? No way. They, they aren't. Like within our field, we're starting to call these, you know, if you're writing a, a review article, we're starting to say it's myelodysplastic syndromes. And then in parentheses, recently renamed myelodysplastic neoplasms by the WHO in parentheses, right? So we're starting to get it into our publications. We're starting to get used to it. It's still parenthetical. So if it's still parenthetical to us and how we're referring to them, it's, it's not even on the radar of most of our patients who are showing up. So I do think it'll take a few years for it to be culturalized so that we start to everyone starts to use myelodysplastic neoplasms. Um, I, I will be honest with you. I haven't started to, to use the phrase myself just because old habits die hard, but not because I don't believe in it. So with the variant allelic frequency question, what I, what I meant with that is that um, this patient had a high VAF and, and Ashwin, I apologize if I don't remember it correctly. I think the VAF was 33%. It's uh, 22.9, 22.9%. I'm sorry. You said 23%. Not, I, I wrote that down wrong. So 23%, um, which means that it's, it's not one of these VAFs that's just over the level of detectability. And typically, that can be, depending on the test, either 2% or 5%. So meaning that it isn't kind of background noise. It, it is involved in, I think it is squarely involved in what's going on with this patient with the anemia and with, the, um, with what's being seen morphologically in the bone marrow. Um, as opposed to something that may be a, an innocent or not so innocent bystander.
2: And without wanting to dichotomize continuous variables, uh, like we're talking about with blasts, what sort of number do you start to think, oh, this is real?
1: Ooh, good question also. Um, you know, once it starts to get into double digits, I believe it. And then once it gets too high, I start to wonder whether it could be a germline mutation. And certainly, when it gets close to 50%, we start to think about germline mutations. But I've heard that even more conservatively, as anything over 35%, we should start to think about germline mutations. And there is this movement within hematologic malignancies in general to, to be more tuned into germline mutations, even in older adults. One, one of my favorite stories to tell, and poor Ashwin and Raj have probably heard this about 30 times, is about the day when a, a gentleman who was in his Uh, mid to late 60s came into my clinic and had myelodysplastic syndrome and said, by the way, my twin brother also has myelodysplastic syndromes. And and that happens about once in your career. So when that happens, you've got to like go, oh my God, wait a second, what is going on here? Right. And and think about whether this is something that you should explore informally or formally in, in greater detail. So we chatted with this guy and actually he said, let me check with my brother, maybe he'll come in and see you also. So it turns, his brother did come in and see us and both generously um, donated uh, samples of their bone marrow to us as well for research purposes. And, uh, and these guys actually had no idea whether they were fraternal or identical twins. So we did the germline testing and informed that they were in fact identical twins. Um, oddly enough, they were actually triplets. Uh, so they had a sister, who was born as well, uh, who died of multiple sclerosis a few years earlier, and they, they they both told us that their dad had died of leukemia, right? So something's starting to 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 smell rotten in the state of Denmark, and um, we 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 did some some analysis of it, and it turns out they both had a mutation in the dead box helicase DDX41, um, and. You know, it really was around the time there was this phase shift in thinking about germline mutations, that it doesn't mean that you get the cancer in this case, MDS or leukemia in your twenties or thirties, but you can actually get a cancer that has a prodrome of six, seven or eight decades that you inherited. It's amazing. Right. But it speaks to a, a couple of phenomena. One is the fact that MDS is not a one hit wonder. It's not like CML. You don't get one mutation and then you get the, the cancer. It's a multi-step process and that multi-step process can take decades. Um, And the second part of it, we we know this from gentlemen like the the man I saw, we also know it from the history of the atomic bomb, right? And and this was amazing. There was a publication in JCO in 2010 that looked at atomic bomb survivors and whether or not they were at higher risk of developing MDS. Uh, And it was performed by the Atomic Bomb Research Institute of Japan. And it turns out that if you were exposed to the atomic bomb, if you had a higher exposure, you're not only more likely to get MDS, but more likely to get higher risk MDS in the 1980s and 90s. A prodrome of four or five decades from exposure to the atomic bomb. So all this fits together to say that that, these folks who have these germline mutations, so VAFs closer to 50% or 100%, it can actually occur when cancer occurs in people in their 60s 70s and 80s thank you dr sakuras for
0: that excellent discussion moving forward with the next part of our discussion which is about treatment and as you mentioned you would initially initiate transfusions if they become transfusion dependent especially uh, their hemoglobin is less than eight um, and they are symptomatic from their anemia but when do you start thinking about ESAs, erythropoietic stimulating agents for these patients?
1: Yeah, and another, another great question, Ashwin. So um, I do check a baseline serum EPO level in patients. Uh, there was the Nordic MDS group came out with an algorithm that basically showed it something that's intuitively pretty obvious, right? That if you have, a base, at baseline, a low serum EPO level, and in MDS we consider low less than 100 or 200, even though by lab values that's high, the upper limit of normal for most lab values is around 25, and you don't yet require transfusions, your likelihood of responding to an ESA may be as high as about 75%. On the other hand, if you come into clinic and your serum EPO level is already sky high, and I've seen patients with an EPO level in the thousands having received no doses of EPO, and you're already dependent on blood transfusions, the likelihood of, of an, e, an ESA working at baseline is less than 10%. So, for somebody like this, I would check a baseline serum EPO level. He hasn't required transfusions yet, right? So, right off the bat, I know that his chance of responding to an ESA is, is probably at least around 25%, regardless of his, his baseline EPO level. Then the trick is giving the right dose of EPO. And this is probably one of the biggest mistakes I see um, by folks who aren't used to treating MDS. They will start patients out at renal EPO levels. So, um, you know, I'll see patients started at uh, EPO at 10,000 or 20,000 units a week or every other week. Patients with MDS should be started at a dose of about 60,000 units per week if it's EPO or 500 micrograms of Darbo every three weeks. And then that gives you a little wiggle room to have a one-time increase. So 60,000 to 80,000 units of EPO, or going with 500 micrograms every three weeks to 500 micrograms every two weeks, and somebody is getting Darbopoetan. And in those patients, as a whole, the likelihood they're going to respond to one of these drugs is probably in the range of about 30 to 40% for all comers but higher in those who have lower serum epa levels at baseline. Do you have any particular target of hemoglobin you want to achieve with ESCs? Boy, that's, it's another great question. I don't know where I heard this. I heard a doc explaining to, no, actually a patient reflected this back to me from something that her doctor had said before she was referred to me. And that doctor right off the bat said to her, okay, I'm going to start you on uh, erythropoietin but I don't want you to think that this is going to make your hemoglobin level normal. Typically you're going to wind up with a hemoglobin of around nine to 10. And I was like, Oh my God, what a great idea. Setting expectations at the very beginning that we're not shooting for normal. We're shooting for no transfusions and improved functional status. So, you know, in the end, that's what I'm going for, right? That, that someone feels better. They don't need transfusions. I'm improving their quality of life. And you want to see how, just how long they can go in doing that with an ESA your typical median duration of response is going to be between 12 and 18 months
0: got it and i've seen this occasionally being done is some people add GCSF if they're not getting a good response to ESAs do you use that in your practice
1: as well yeah um you know that was something that the Nordic group also promoted but they give GCSF a different way than we give it they give it like daily. I mean, you've you've got to have a really dedicated patient to get GCSF that way, um, or at least three times a week. It's something like very frequently that they gave it. The way we give it here in the US that we can barely convince our patients to come in once a week. So I don't use it. And then what also influences me is a a quasi meta analysis that we did about 10 years ago, where we looked at all the published literature on ESAs. And sure enough, if you look at the combination of an ESA and GCSF, the response rate seems higher than an ESA alone. But if you drill down to that and just focus on erythroid responses and don't include in that neutrophil responses, the response rate's the same as it is for ESA monotherapy. So based on all of that, I don't tend to start GCSF in, in, in patients on top of the EPO that they're getting.
0: So for example, in a patient like this, who let's say presented only with thrombocytopenia and does not have anemia, how would you approach a patient like that?
1: Sure, so if a patient has an isolated thrombocytopenia, this happens in about 6% of patients with MDS. So it's relatively uncommon that they don't have a bicytopenia. Usually if the platelets go down, it means there's there, there's more corruption going on in the, in the bone marrow than just along the megakaryocyte line. If somebody has either an isolated thrombocytopenia or a predominating thrombocytopenia, so let's say the hemoglobin is hovering in the upper eights, but gee whiz, the platelets are going down into like the 20s, and you know they're going to get into trouble soon, um, there are a couple of different approaches I would consider. One are the uh, thrombopoietin mimetics, so L-thrombopega or romeplostem. The challenge with those drugs is that they have a checkered past. Um, particularly romiplostim. There was a randomized phase two study in which patients who had thrombocytopenia were randomized getting romiplostim or placebo. Unfortunately, in that study, patients with excess blasts were enrolled and blasts have TPO receptors. So we had seen in the original phase one slash two study that these patients blasted off and, and went right into leukemia, right? I and mean, when that happened, of course, we all like immediately became incontinent, stopped the, the romiplostim. And the platelets did drift down on most of these patients, but not all. So when the follow-up study was being constructed, those of us on the steering committee said, you know, we better stop, we better not enroll patients with excess blasts. But w- our, our advice was frankly ignored. So patients were enrolled with excess blasts and lo and behold, the DSMB for the study shut the study down early because there was a two and a half fold higher rate of leukemic transformation than those who got 10 versus those who got placebo. And it won't surprise you to hear that 75% of those patients who flipped over to AML started with excess blasts. So for that reason, the drug will never be approved with an MDS indication because you'd have to design a study powered not on efficacy but on safety. Um, so it is, these drugs are used off-label, never, ever, ever in somebody who has excess blasts. And with a very long discussion with a patient about these study results, risks of transforming to AML um, and then whether or not they, they would wanna give it a go. All that being said, the response rate to t is around 40%. So n- not bad, really not bad. Um, I, I think a, a more common approach in patients like this is they're started on a hypomethylating agent. Uh, and if I were to, to do that in a patient with lower risk MDS, um, I would use the um, attenuated dosing schedule uh, that we published in uh, NEJM evidence, uh, about a year ago.
0: Um, I think one agent that is approved for this particular patient with ring ringsidroblast and SF3B1 mutation is Lospatacept. Can you you know, describe what is Lospatacept and why it is particularly sensitive patients with ring ringsidroblast?
1: Yeah. So, um, was approved in 2020 for lower risk MDS patients with ring sideroblasts um, who either had previously been exposed to ESAs or were unlikely to respond to ESAs and who were transfusion dependent. Um, it works through SMAD2 three signaling at late stages of erythropoiesis. Um, and uh, the focus on patients with ring sideroblasts, I will admit to you, uh, doesn't have a great scientific rationale. In, in fact, there was um, an advisory committee meeting that, we all, that a bunch of us attended in New York where, um, the manufacturer was debating which direction to go, and actually they were debating whether to go forward with loose Patercept or Sotatercept in MDS. And both, both studies in, in a phase two setting had about the same response rates, so somewhere between 40 and 45%. It was a slightly higher response rate for patients who had ring sideroblasts. Now, that is a phenomenon of patients with ring sideroblasts. They, they do have a predilection for responding better to certain treatments. Um, so that was the decision. Okay, now we'll, we'll just expand it into patients with ring sideroblasts. And there's a lot of hand-waving about kind of mechanistically why that, that might work. I'll be honest with you. I don't understand the explanation. I think it was just simply a decision because they seem to respond a little bit better. Their response rate to loose Patercept for transfusion independence lasting at least eight weeks was 38% compared to 13% in the placebo arm. And it just emphasizes why it's so important to have placebo controlled trials in patients with lower risk MDS. Sometimes these older folks who have comorbidities may have anemia due to other reasons, like GI bleeding. And those other reasons may fortuitously correct themselves just when a patient is entering the trial. So it isn't that patients um, on the placebo arm had this miraculous 13% response rate to placebo. It's that whatever was causing their anemia or contributing to it, fortuitously stopped just as they were entering the trial, or they go through periods of time when they need more transfusions and less transfusions, and they just happen to catch it at the right time. So th- it's a drug that honestly, I think, if you look at the absolute difference in transfusion independent response rate, it's 25%. Um, so it's okay. About in the range we always seem to see for lower risk MDS of about 25 to 33%. The um, median duration is about 32 weeks. It doesn't have a lot of side effects. Uh, and for that reason, I tend to use it. We may be using more of it as there was a press release that up front, there seemed to be an advantage to using Lucipatacept versus erythropoiesis-stimulating agents. I think the devil will be in the details in that study about the dosing of the ESAs and the duration of treatment with the ESAs and whether it was truly a comparable control group.
0: And also probably the distribution of ring citroblast in either of the arms as well, right? If if the uh, Lucipatacept arm has more ring sideroblast patients, probably they had a better response versus the uh, the ESA arm yeah
1: yeah absolutely absolutely that may be true
2: so now uh, let's switch gears and talk about lenalidomide in low-risk MDS Um, you obviously have a lot of experience with lenalidomide um, in low-risk MDS so can you tell us what's the unique mechanism of action of lenalidomide and why it's particularly sensitive um, in patients who have deletion 5q low-risk MDS with anemia
1: Yeah, for for patients with deletion 5Q, it it works through uh, ribosomal mechanisms um, and similar to what you see with some congenital uh, anemias. Um, And in those patients, it actually has this, this incredible, well, I say incredible, but incredible for lower risk MDS, a transfusion independence response rate that approaches two thirds. And that's about double, like I said earlier, what we see with other treatment approaches for lower risk MDS. A bunch of folks, and including me in some of these studies, have, have looked at predictors for response and how to accurately, how to dose lenalidomide in a way that will maximize the likelihood that a patient with deletion 5Q will actually respond to the drug. And what we found in those studies is that um, first of all, if patients develop severe thrombocytopenia it predicts that they will have an erythroid response. So the platelets seem to be the most sensitive to the disease modifying effects of the drug. What we also found is that, uh, this was a complicated story to tell, that you think about lenalidomide dosing and deletion 5q as an induction phase and then a post remission phase. So induction phase, meaning that you give the drug at higher doses, 10 milligrams A day or 10 milligrams for 21 out of 28 days. Um, Ideally for the first three cycles, you maximize response and then you dose reduce it for patients who have cytopenia. So there's two components to it. It's maximizing the dose at the the beginning and then making sure that you dose reduce so patients remain on the drug long-term. And when you do that, we actually showed that there was a survival advantage to patients treated with lenalidomide versus those who weren't. For patients without deletion 5q, uh, the responses are more modest. Uh, transfusion independence response rate of 27%, duration of response of about 31 weeks. Um, at the time when those data were submitted to the FDA based on the randomized study led by uh, Valeria Santini from Florence, the FDA said those aren't good enough for approval. So when we use it off We use it in non-deletion PIQ, lower-risk MDS, it's an off-label indication.
2: One thing I wanted to ask is, you know, as we know that liridomite can lead to higher risk of secondary malignancies, are you concerned about lead use in patients with DEL5Q who have a pre-existing TP53 mutation, are you concerned about transformation to AML in those patients?
1: Boy, I I love that question, I'm not sure I have a great answer for you. Um, Do I worry about it? Absolutely. Um, do I think that the story about secondary malignancies with lenalidomide is real? I do think it's real. Is it possible that it's breeding out P53 mutations? In other words, it's giving some kind of selective advantage to cells that have a P53 mutation. Um, I do think that's possible. Um, would I use it in somebody who has deletion 5Q and a P53? For, for lack of better options, I might try it. Recognizing that those patients have a predilection for transforming to AML already because of the p fifty three mutation, so I wonder, Raj, and I don't know the answer to this: if it, if the the pathway to secondary malignancies for lenalidomide is through um, suppressing the primary clone, which allows a p fifty three clone to grow out, that then leads to secondary malignancies, as opposed to patients who already have a p fifty three clone where it's it's not going to support that anymore it's already kind of out there and probably a driver mutation but it also probably isn't going to work in those patients
0: one question dr sakras and while we're talking about lenalidomide you have a very interesting clinical trial in combination of lenalidomide with Lusparticept and non-delphiq and low-risk mds patients can you tell us a little bit about the clinical trial and when can we expect
1: the results <laughs> Thank you for asking. So so yeah, we, we have um, a, a trial that is open and enrolling where we're looking at folks who have lower risk non-deletion 5Q MDS, and we're combining lenalidomide and loose patercept. And what we're doing is actually keeping the dose of loose patercept stable. I'm going to put that in air quotes here. And we're dose escalating the lenalidomide um, starting at Two, at a two and a half milligrams, um, going to five milligrams and then going to 10 milligrams. The loose pattern step, we are allowing dose escalation on label. So patients who've been um, on the drug for a certain number of weeks, they can dose escalated from um, one mg per kg to 1.33 mg per kg to 1.75 mg per kg. Um, And we'll see if the combination yields benefits over either one of these drugs alone. Um, As I mentioned, the response rate to lenalidomide for non-deletion 5Q is about 27% for transfusion independence. To um, loose powder alone is is 38%. And we're trying to do better than either one of those. When can we expect some results? I would think, oh boy. we're making it through the phase one portion. I'd like to report some early results on the phase one portion before we expand to the phase two portion. So we'll see if we can at least get an abstract out. Got it, got it. Look forward to those results.
0: You already alluded earlier uh, using hypomethylating agents in some of the low-risk patients. We all know that hypomethylating agents are the cornerstone of management for high-risk MDS. When do you use HMAs
1: in low-risk MDS patients? Yeah. So um, I will consider hypomethylating agents upfront in patients who have multiple cytopenias, um, where I believe that that more than one cytopenia is also a threat to the patient. So uh, patients who have neutropenia, uh, patients who have uh, low hemoglobin, that could lead to transfusions, patients who have uh, severe thrombocytopenia. Um, I am a fan of uh, an attenuated or Truncated dosing schedule, where instead of giving decitabine for five days in a twenty-eight day cycle or azacitidine for seven days in a twenty-eight day cycle, we give either one of those drugs for three days. And um, in a study that we that I, as I mentioned, we published in NAGM Evidence, uh, we showed that getting just three days of either azacitidine or decitabine leads to what I would call real responses in almost fifty percent of patients as opposed to what traditionally has been seen, which is a response rate of about 35% of patients. So you know, less drug, less toxicity, more tolerable. And we wonder if part of it is the tolerability that patients can really take these for months, because it's not a lot of drug. Um, And it it appears to have better response rates.
0: In the clinical trial, you mentioned published in New England Journal of Medicine evidence. Um, Decidivine had had a more better oral response rate compared to azacitidine. What do you think the difference is? Because in clinical practice, we usually see a equivalent response with dicitabine as well as azacitidine.
1: Yeah, i a. I wondered that my, myself, Ashwin. And part of that was a phenomenon of the Bayesian randomization scheme that, that it went through. Um, so mm-hmm. as, as, you, as I'm sure you guys know, the, the Bayesian randomization means that in real time, people are looking at Response rates and, and occasionally tolerability of drugs, and will preferentially randomize to one drug versus another. There's a lot of rationale for this. It's actually something that was developed by, by someone who's a role model of mine, Eli Estee, when he was at MD Anderson. But I wonder if it compromises the ability to truly look at differences between arms because you're underpowered to look at those differences. So I I can't tell based on the randomization scheme if there's a true advantage to Decidabine or it was just a quirk of the randomization.
0: One other thing, and this is something I struggle with in the clinical practice, is I get a lot of referrals from community where they already were started on oral Decidabine, oral Azacitidine even though these drugs have not been shown to be equivalent with the IV formulations.
1: What do you what do, you do when, when you get a patient like this? Yeah, I, uh, I'm i not sure yet. That's the, the, the short answer. Um, oral azacitidine certainly is not equivalent to subcure IV azacitidine. Like, no way, no doubt about it, patients shouldn't be treated with that. And that's something where I step in and I will change the therapy. Um, oral decitabine cetazuridine was FDA-approved based on PK data, and as you know, the the study that contributed to that um, had a little bit of a quirky design where patients started off getting either oral decitabine cetazuridine or IV decitabine, and then switched over after one cycle. So everyone got both drugs, right, so you can't look at efficacy. It's impossible. And even if you did look at efficacy, it's certainly not looking at survival efficacy, and only a small percentage of those patients were enrolled with lower risk disease with intermediate one. Majority had intermediate two or high risk disease. So given all of that, I'm not sold on the oral decitabine cetazuridine, particularly since you're comparing it in higher risk patients to IV decitabine, which hasn't shown a survival advantage in higher risk MDS patients. So you're taking two steps away from level one data in higher risk MDS patients. In lower risk MDS patients, I feel a little more comfortable with it. I certainly use it in my patients who fly back and forth to South America down here in South Florida, um, because they can take it. Uh, I think the one risk of taking it though, is that a lot of doctors prescribe it as a pill. And then they say, see you later to their patients and see them back in a month. And they they have to have their blood counts monitored at least weekly as they're getting started on these drugs. I think
0: one important question i have as the supportive care in terms of iron chelation therapy this is something i struggle with and the data is not clear in this space do you use iron chelation therapy in patients who are transfusion dependent i i'm
1: I, I i'm a self-declared chelation nihilist <laughs> <laughs> and why is that why, why don't you use iron chelation therapy Well, so iron chelation therapy makes total sense in congenital hematologic disorders like sickle cell or thalassemia, right? Because then you're you're staring transfusions squarely in the face from birth for the rest of your life. And the 20, 30, 40 years of transfusions, my word, absolutely. You're gonna get iron overloaded. You're gonna have end-organ damage and it's gonna significantly uh, affect your survival. For my... 70-year-olds with MDS, I should be so lucky that they live long enough to see the deleterious effects of iron overload. In all honesty, right? I see somebody who's looking at two or three years of transfusions. Yeah, it's no fun. Absolutely, it's no fun. But um, the likelihood that they're going to get enough iron overload, that they're going to get cardiac damage or liver damage or uh, damage to their endocrine system, highly unlikely. And the data supporting it, anything that's retrospective is corrupted by selection biases of who who undergoes chelation. And the one randomized trial was took forever to enroll, um, was underpowered, and in the end, the the endpoints were kind of quirky, uh, focused on things like hospitalization, uh, but not on a hard endpoint like survival. So, for all of those reasons, have I ever used iron chelation? I have, Ashwin. I, a couple of times I've had patients who are getting up towards, you know, 75 transfusions, 100 transfusions, and I use something that's, that's very unscientific. When they start to get that bronzy appearance to their skin, I figure then you'd have iron deposition in end organs, right? I can see it. Uh, and then I have tried it. Um, I will tell you the. Um, percentage of patients I've tried it on who've re- been able to remain on it is 0% because of the side effects.
0: <laughs> One last question. Do you ever refer a low-risk MDS patients who, for example, fail HMA to allo evaluation?
1: Yeah, I think there is a role for transplant in lower-risk MDS patients. It's a great question. It's very tricky, though, and it's in the patient um, for whom all available therapies have failed. And where you're getting into a zone where there aren't a lot of clinical trials available, and you know a lot of clinical trials in lower risk MDS focus on anemia. So if you have a patient who has thrombocytopenia, it's really hard to get to find a trial for that person. Um, so multiple cytopenias, available therapies have failed them. Um, inclusion criteria for clinical trials are really keeping them out of them. I, I'm running out of options, and that's when I would consider.
2: It. Yeah. So. Um... Thanks so much for those really great and very clinically applicable insights into MDS. I am uh, not a myeloid fellow nerd, but I am a fellow policy nerd, and FDA nerd. And so I wanted to uh, both congratulate you and ask you a bit about the topic of your recent book, which is called Drugs and the FDA, Safety, Efficacy and the Public's Trust. You have been on the Oncology Drug Advisory Committee at the FDA and the chair of it for, for a period of time over the past uh Fifteen years, it, it looks like. And um, I wanted to start by asking you, obviously not many academic hematologists write popular books. What made you want to write a book, and how did you find the experience?
1: Well, thank you for saying that it's popular that since since you read it and my mom, I'll take that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, I came, so so I enjoy writing. I come from a family of writers. my My dad was a a journalist with the Providence Journal in Rhode Island and um, I've, I've written essays for for a, a number of years. Um, I, I look at writing um, as a way of processing just the deluge of humanity that we see in medicine, right? I mean, what other professions do you see people from all walks of life um, at a, a critical tipping point in their life, right, when they have a serious diagnosis and are invited into um, into their family, really? Um, as, as we're talking about very serious issues and we're weighing things like quality of life, goals of care, what do you want to do with your remaining days and how can we get you there, right? It's, it's a very special time. So I, I write, I think, to, to process all of that and also to pay tribute to my patients and to honor them. Um, this particular book, why did I write it? Because I came out of the proceedings on the breast cancer drug Avastin and thought something really amazing had happened during those proceedings and at the time i actually talked to paul goldberg who um publishes and and writes for the cancer letter and he was covering it and he covers all things at, at the fda that touch cancer uh, and i said to him "Gee, paul you're gonna you're gonna write about this he's like yeah well someone's got to," and and then like i did like paul wrote some beautiful pieces for the cancer letter about the proceedings um but i didn't see a book come out about it And so I finally decided, you know what? I guess I'm the one to take this this topic on. And the reason it was so amazing is because, to give you a little background, the breast cancer drug Avastin received accelerated approval for women with metastatic breast cancer. And it received accelerated approval based on a trial that showed a progression-free survival advantage for um, patients who received Taxol plus um, Avastin of about six months. It was 5.9 months over patients who just received the taxane alone. And the accelerated approval mechanism at the FDA is really interesting. It basically tries to get drugs on the market quickly for people who have life-threatening illnesses and who have very few other options. But the quid pro quo for accelerated approval is that a confirmatory study has to be conducted that shows not only that the original advantage of the drug is replicated, but ideally, that it shows that the drug improves overall survival. right? So it was originally approved based on progression-free survival. That's an interim marker of a clinically meaningful benefit, the meaningful benefit being overall survival. So there were two confirmatory studies that were conducted. um, And those studies, um, not only did they not show a survival advantage for women who got Avastin, that progression-free survival shrank to weeks so the FDA was in a quandary and this is a drug that is not a hundred percent benign like people get serious um, GI toxicities to it uh, there was excess bleeding events and they were they were um, grade five bleeding events so women died getting the drug and the FDA decided this drug uh, probably isn't any more effective than the control arms uh, and maybe more harmful so they turned to the manufacturer of the drug and said um, we want you to pull your drug and when the FDA does this, I mean, if you're a company making a drug, and the FDA basically says to you, we don't think your drug works and we think it's dangerous. You, it's kind of a PR disaster, right? So you're going to pull the drug from the market. But in this case, the company said, no, we're not going to. And that is their legal right. So then what happens is there's basically a, a trial. It's almost like a court hearing where the FDA's lawyers go against the company's lawyers. And they have to convene a quote unquote jury well Odak was the jury, and I was on that jury um and uh, you can imagine how contentious this was right and there were a massive number of protesters we were told to unlist our phone numbers and participating in this hearing and um when our decision when we gave our our vote our dec- our vote and, and our decision um we were armed security leapt to our table to kind of surround us and escort us out of a back door of the FDA to a waiting limousine, to whisk us away to the airport. Um, because so they, they, they felt like we were in danger, uh, with, with how the crowds were rushing us. So, um, it was this amazing proceeding. Right. And I was left leaving that. And I remember thinking this in the limo on the way to the airport, did I just witness the greatest demonstration of how well the FDA works? And how well it doesn't work.
2: Yeah, it's fascinating. And I want to take you from then. You've sort of had a uh, callback to the the ODAC in recent times, particularly to talk about um, a bunch of heme drugs, which... Uh, our audience probably know better from the clinical perspective things like melphalan, flufenamide, milflufen for myeloma, duvelisib for CLL, into lymphomas, and most recently the polatuzumab odac. I think you're involved with all of those as a kind of recall to the odac for a kind of uh, uh, like a like a, a famous musician being called up for a kind of uh, re, re, um, another another go. And so I wanted to you to ref- or as uh, i'm curious as to how you reflect on the kind of bevacizumab breast cancer saga of now kind of more than 10 years ago have we have we has the fda learned have 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 drug trialists learned or or are we kind of still falling into the same traps and and you know if so what would you change about fda's kind of approach to to accelerated approval and and to these kind of drugs which have seemed to have a benefit at first but maybe that benefit becomes more questionable when you look a bit harder
1: yeah so i i like to think of myself not so much as a as an aging rock musician being called back to the stage but more as you know Jaja gabor making a guest appearance on the love boat
2: <laughs> absolutely absolutely
1: oh thank you for agreeing with me eddie on that um so uh you know <laughs> History repeats itself over and over again. I wonder if my being selected to be on those ODAX was deliberate by the FDA because I've made my kind of my own thoughts about um, you know, endpoints that fall short of overall survival uh, should be viewed at the FDA for years. I mean, ever since I was in the, the period of time when I was at the um, Avastin hearings. And in in a couple of these cases, these were drugs that were approved based on smaller trials, and um, subsequent data showed that the drugs not only didn't work as well, but there may even have been a signal that people who got those drugs didn't live as long. And that's hard when you have drugs that are approved um, when patients will get subsequent therapies, because an argument that's frequently made is, well, these patients got treated subsequently differently, and that affected their overall survival. But I don't buy that argument. And the reason I don't buy that argument is because these drugs might have had an indication for, you know, frontline or second line or third or fourth line therapy, whatever it is, treatments that were received after that have never been shown to impact overall survival in these diseases. So to say that patients were treated differentially afterwards actually doesn't hold a lot of water because that subsequent treatment does shouldn't impact overall survival, right? The, the um, the the was a slightly different issue for me, so I was in the minority on that. Which is, which actually, I was reflecting on, is kind of unusual. Usually, I'm in the majority of these decisions. I was in the minority on that one, like big time. And the reason I opposed Polituzumab is because I was I was questioning a representative from the company, and you know, he, to be honest, he was kind of dodging answering my question, um, w- which is always a bad sign. And I, I kept following up with him, and finally, he acknowledged that. The diagnosis for large cell lymphoma wasn't confirmed centrally. It was a local diagnosis. And this is after Chris Flowers gave a very nice opening presentation about how hard it is to diagnose these lymphomas. So for me, that didn't line up. If you're making a presentation saying these lymphomas are really tricky to diagnose, then you're saying you didn't centrally confirm the diagnosis. How do we trust the diagnosis? And part of the FDA's issue with it was that it was a mixed bag of patients. So you had some patients who had a large cell lymphoma, some patients who had like a MIC-driven, very aggressive lymphoma who were also on the study. And, and, and those patients, I would personally argue, are undertreated on the control arm of RCHOP, right? Those are patients I would treat with hyper-CVAD or like the McGrath regimen, CODOX-M. My, my second issue with it is that um, you know, the primary endpoint was progression-free survival, and they didn't verify the progression by central review of CAT scans or PET scans. And previously, the FDA has held ODACs where they acknowledge that discrepancies in reads of CAT scans locally and centrally are typically one-third. So one-third of the time, people don't agree that central expert reviewers disagree with a local interpretation of whether or not a patient progressed. So in my mind, in that case, you didn't have confirmation. You 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 didn't complete the basics of a randomized trial in hematologic malignancies. You didn't confirm the diagnosis. And he didn't confirm progression now circling back to your to eddie what what you were asking about i I think that the fact that this is happening now was absolutely predictable for for the past few years frankly ever since scott gottlieb took over fda um there there has been a tsunami of accelerated approvals and that was partly what gottlieb said he was going to do he believed in more of a free market approach to drugs. So, you get a lot of drugs out there and let the free market determine which are used and which aren't. So, that was kind of the directive of Gottlieb that they approve more drugs and they approve them quicker. So, they did. And now, five years has passed and you've got to face the piper, right? You've got to now follow up on that follow up data and those confirmatory studies that aren't necessarily going to confirm and you've got to pull drugs. So, then that's what we're seeing. And that, that's why we're seeing a bunch of them in, in the last couple of years.
2: No, that's um that's really interesting, and I don't want to turn this into a discussion about apologism uh, and polarics, because we could talk about that for an hour, I'm sure. But uh, it's certainly fascinating to hear uh, kind of how you think about and how the timelines all, all play into what we're seeing now. Um, yeah, thanks.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Sakras, for your time. And we look forward to having you again on our podcast. To talk about drug policy like eddie mentioned and as a full episode as well as on high-risk mds
1: well thank you so much for inviting me it has been absolutely delightful chatting with all of you thanks for the outstanding questions